My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international law. In the following two podcasts, I examine the sources of international law. International law is distinct from municipal law, from domestic law, from state law, in that we do not have a supreme lawmaking authority. As a result, the sources of international law tend to be something of a hodgepodge. It is a blend then of elements. There are treaties, there are customs, there are general principles, there are writings of publicists, and yes, there are judicial decisions. Now, how then we handle this mixed bag, this buffet of sources, is going to be the topic of the next two episodes. All right, so um, let's go ahead and get started then. So uh, first things, I have a favor to ask of you. Um, you notice as you look around, there are many of you, what? nearly 100 enrolled in the module, and you know that I teach other modules and other seminars. Now, this is a small campus. Leamington Spa is equally small. Birmingham, not so much bigger. So there's a good chance that we will run into each other at some point over the course of the coming term or the coming year. Now what usually happens is a moment where I'm looking at someone and I think, I kind of recognize this student. And they look back at me as if, A, I'm a creep. <laughs> right? Or B, and I'm sure you've all done this, wow, look at this guy today. <laughs> Is he gone? Is he gone? Is he gone? Hoof. Okay. <laughs> All right. So everybody's been through that. You've experienced it and such. Now to those who are going to throw their head up, right? Smooth. No need for whiplash or anything. Just take your time and casually gaze upwards. Right? Or you happen to notice, my shoes need a bit of shining. How interesting. Until you pass me. Don't injure yourselves in the process. That's the first thing. For those who are looking at me, so I have the choice. I can either maintain the contact and crack the smile, which effectively means I end up smiling at virtually everyone, reinforcing what I said earlier, what a creep. Or, you can give me a hint as in the smile or the, hey, Mosin, oh, hey, how are you? And then we cross and we never have to speak again. <laughs> but at least save me that embarrassment of having to look and wonder, is this one of my students or am I just a creep? All right, help me out with that. So that's the favor. Thank you. Now, continuing with our second session on sources, sources of international law. Quick recap. I said to you before, international law, free consent of states, no clarity within the legal framework as to how international laws are made. No clarity on that. What we do have is Article 38 of the ICJ, statutory or the ICJ treaty, 
and that points then to four sources, which we've discussed briefly. So we have treaties, customary international law, we know we have general principles and judicial decisions, as well as the legal writings of publicists, those four. Mention to you that there is a case, the Boz Court and Lotus case, particularly important when it comes to understanding the nature of international law. Conclusion, international law is a permissive system, not a prohibitive one, but a permissive system. That means that behavior is permitted unless explicitly prohibited. So we have that. Second case that we considered, the Wimbledon case, the Wimbledon ratio that came out of Wimbledon, consent to restrictions on sovereignty. So consenting to restrictions, consenting to qualifying your sovereignty is itself not a violation of sovereignty. It can be reconciled with sovereignty. From that, we took away two key lessons. International law is a positivist system and states that consent to restrictions will be held to them. You can repudiate a treaty, but while that treaty is valid, you will be held to the obligations that you committed to. From there, we moved forward and we had a look at customary international law and that we said for custom we require two elements. In the first hand, we require general practices, general practices, and in the second, general practices that are regarded as law, meaning they possess opinio juris. They are accepted as law. We spoke a little bit about that. Now I'm going to take about five minutes to say a little bit more on customary international law, and from there we'll move into our examination of treaties. Now, we said that we have general practices, and those general practices are accepted as law. They don't have to be accepted as law by all states. Mostly they have to be accepted as law by relevant states. And once they are accepted as law by relevant states, and they acquire the status then of customary international law, then at that point, you can expect all states to be bound by it because it is now part of customary international law. Now this we say is an exception to the consent rule, an exception to the consent rule. So I've said to you before that a state has to consent to restrictions upon its sovereignty. And I said to you there are some exceptions out there. The exceptions are few. One of them then is customary international law. And this is where we ask the question, can a state object to customary international law? Now let's just put it in perspective. International law is built on the consent of states. We cannot impose international law on anyone or on any state. So that consent can be explicit in the case of treaties, or can be implied in the case of customary international law. So now there, you can be bound to a custom even without your explicit consent. That is the nature of customary international law. So we ask the question, can a state object to customary, a customary rule and say, I do not wish to be bound by that custom. The answer is 
Yes, but they must make their objection known. Yes, they can object to a customary rule, but they must make their objection known. Now, what does that mean? So we use as an example the fisheries case. The fisheries case. Fisheries case involved Norway and England. We have then Norway and England. So we'll go for England and we'll go for Norway. There's a body of water that separates the two of them. North Sea, anyone's heard of it? Yes. So we have this body of water that separates them. Now Norway happens to have a rather particular coastline. The coastline is littered with islands. As a result, when it comes to deciding where its coastline and thus its waters end, the standard approach based upon nautical miles from the coastline does not exactly work. Why? Because of all of these islands. So what Norway does instead is to draw what it terms an artificial baseline. And it says our waters run until here. Now this distance varies from the line, the artificial line that they've drawn, which is different from the standard approach where you just follow the coast. And so if the coast pulls inwards, then necessarily your territorial waters pull inwards as well. They must remain equidistant from the coastline. So Norway draws an artificial line. There is a dispute as an English ship is fishing right here. It crosses over Norway's artificial line. Now England argued before the ICJ that it didn't know. Norway argues custom. This has been the practice for generations for us to draw this artificial coastline to deal with the realities on the ground, a type of historical necessity. And England's response was, I didn't know. Now, how did the court respond? The court responded by looking at Norway's claim that it had practiced this artificial coastline for several generations. And we see that there were notices provided in different journals. There were declarations made by the government. There were a variety of instances, a variety of ways in which Norway communicated to the region that it was drawing an artificial line. The court also looked at England and said, England is a maritime power. England has been a maritime power since the 16th century. It is not possible that England did not know how one of its neighboring states was regulating the water that separated them. And so then when the issue came up, is this a part of customary international law? The answer was yes. Is England bound by it? Yes. Why? Because at no point did England object to Norway's drawing of an artificial coastline. So yes, we can object to a customary rule. However, that objection must be made evident.
must be made known to others. The second point that I'd like to make about custom before turning to treaties, the second one is, does breaking a custom end it? So if you decide, we know we can repudiate a treaty, right? We can repudiate a treaty, we withdraw. We decide we do not want to be a member of that treaty anymore, and we cease to be bound by it. We've got that. Can you, in effect, repudiate custom? Is that possible? And the answer is, not exactly. And this is where we come into the types of exceptions once again. Now, one type of exception that we won't deal with today, we'll discuss at some point later, is the one that I've mentioned to you, jus cogens. J-U-S, jus, cogens, C-O-G-E-N-S. And these are what we refer to as peremptory norms. Peremptory norms are norms that no state has the authority to derogate from. No state can say, I choose to repudiate that norm, I will practice that act at will, and I cannot be held accountable for my actions. What are examples, then, of jus cogens, peremptory norms? Pretty straightforward, genocide, right? That would be a pretty good example. No state is permitted to say, yes, we will lawfully practice genocide. Slavery, no state can declare we will lawfully practice slavery. Torture, er? hmm, hmm, right? Tough one, why? Because we know governments practice torture. We know this government, our government, UK's government has practiced torture. We know that a number of law professors have written memos supporting their government's use of waterboarding that is regarded by virtually everyone universally as torture. I've written memos declaring that that was permissible under certain circumstances. Does this mean that torture is not a peremptory norm? And again, this is where we say, not exactly. So let us consider this through the lens, the lens of the Nicaragua case. The Nicaragua case, some of you might be familiar with it. You had US trained Nicaraguan militia. So the US trained Nicaraguan militia. What did this militia do? They laid landmines that resulted in a number of deaths, small incursions, invasions. They were attacking oil installations and so on a variety of acts that would be considered a war crime if it was one state carrying it out against another. But this was happening then by a militia group, meaning not by a state itself. It just happened that this militia group was funded and trained by the United States. So the argument, the claim was brought, and the question was, is there, the US, so we're clear, owned up to training the militia. It is not as though they said we didn't do that. They said, yes, we did do that. So the question then for the court is whether or not there is a prohibition on the use of force in customary international law. Now, let us be clear. The use of force is prohibited in the UN Charter, but due to certain technicalities, the court was not considering the UN Charter and whether or not the US was in violation of it. Instead, it was looking to determine is there a prohibition on the use of force in customary international law? We said multiple sources, four of them, treaties on one hand, customary international law on the other. So they're looking to determine, is there 
a prohibition in customary international law against the use of force. Now here's where it gets interesting. We could say, sort of, once again, we think there's a prohibition. It would probably be illegal for one state to invade another. And yet we know, just by reading the newspaper, that countries engage in bombing campaigns regularly, breaches of borders regularly, abductions, assassinations, so on and so forth. So we do know that states use force against one another. And this was the point that the US made. They said, yes, we use force. So that whole custom, the claim that there's a custom that prohibits the use of force, is moot. We use force, many states use force. How did the ICJ handle it? What the court looked at instead of these instances, these actions, what the court looked at was the general intent, the general intent of states based upon standard conduct. And what we see is that most states declare on the regular, whether before the UN, whether in unilateral declarations, before the Security Commission, in a variety of agencies, to the media, to their own public, that they abhor the use of force, that no force should be used. Yes, they carve out exceptions, but at no point do they say it's perfectly lawful for us to invade another country. At no point do they say it would be lawful if another country invaded us. We would accept the use of force against us. Not at all. So they look at standard conduct on one hand, and they try then to extrapolate from this a type of general intent. So we're not just going to look at the instances where force was deployed, we're also going to look at the behavior as a whole. And in that way, what the ICJ found is that the instances where governments use force against other states is a drop in the bucket. And what they conclude then and what is relevant for you is that in determining custom and whether or not breaking a custom ends it, it is not merely if you can point to exceptional behavior. You would have to point to some type of pattern, a consistent behavior that falls outside then of the custom and that conveys a clear intent not to be bound by it. And of course, when it comes to the use of force, we cannot do that. So is the use of force prohibited in customary international law? Yes. There's much more that could be said about customary international law. We don't have the time, unfortunately. So now we're going to shift over to treaties. Now with our examination of treaties, we begin by stating what a treaty does. Now a treaty gives rise to a series of obligations. Think of a treaty in terms of a contract, and we'll come back to this idea of a contract shortly. But a treaty gives rise to obligations. Now it's important to be clear on this, that it gives rise to obligations. Why are we highlighting this? We're highlighting this because the law would have no meaning otherwise. Think of it in terms of the different normative frameworks that I mentioned to you the other day. So I said to you a general principle that is regarded as law. That is when we are looking at customary international law. And I pointed out to you, I said there are some general principles 
that we abide by, that we comply with, but not because we think they're law. So the way we greet one another, the way states greet dignitaries from other states. So there are not laws surrounding it. This is based more on etiquette. This is based more on diplomacy. So we look at the norms, diplomatic norms. We can look even in instances, political norms. If you happen to have a secret conversation with someone and you tell someone this is confidential, are they permitted to disclose it? Legally, yes, but there are obviously political implications if they do. There are ethical implications. But with law, we are not solely concerned with the political implications or the moral implications or the ethical implications. We are concerned with the legal implications. So a treaty must have binding effect or no legal framework is possible at all. And this is what comes out then of the Vienna Convention, the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. So 1969. Now one side note about the Vienna Convention before we proceed. Understand that the Vienna Convention, the rules are residual. These are residual rules. They will be used to interpret treaties, but they are residual. Why am I specifying that they are residual? What if you as a state want to sign a treaty with another state, but you don't actually like some of the provisions in the Vienna Convention? What can you do? Are you bound by them anyway? Do you have no option? You must comply? Sure, you can agree to some of the provisions. You could opt out of it completely, right? Precisely, remember what we said, international law based on free consent. So we say the rules are residual. If a treaty doesn't specify its rules of interpretation, and many treaties these days do, if it does not specify, we rely on the Vienna Convention. And the presumption is if you do not specify the rules of interpretation, you're accepting the Vienna Convention. And you're accepting it because most of the rules contained in the Vienna Convention were born then of custom. They just were codified in the Convention itself. I encourage you to have a look at the Convention. I know you're reading your textbook and the passages, but the Convention is A, very short, and B, very um, enriching. It's edifying to have a look to see how they went about codifying then the Law of Treaties. So just have a browse of that. Now, as I said to you, the Vienna Convention has a contractual character. And this would make sense because there was a number of British lawyers that drafted it. And British lawyers were coming at it from a contractual right, angle, which would be different if they were civil lawyers who would be thinking of it more from a public perspective. So because you had common lawyers, common law lawyers drafting it, they drafted it with a contractual character. Now one thing that we notice then, because of this contractual character, is that it's very easy for us to deal with a treaty that resembles a contract. And what I mean is that if I happen to have two states that sign an agreement and each one is specifying their obligations to the other, it's very easy for us to handle that because we can identify a breach, we can identify then compliance, we know because everything is in there and it's a relationship between two parties or even when we bring in multiple parties. But we have a much more difficult time dealing with treaties that resemble legislation. So thinking here then about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So if I happen to have a treaty with two parties and there's a dispute, well I understand it. Adversarial legal system, 
court there as the neutral arbiter to determine then who is in breach and then what type of remedy is available. But if there's a breach by a state of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, immediately then we start thinking, but how would you take action? We're not referring to the European Convention of Human Rights because that's a supranational regime. We're referring to the international legal regime. So if we're looking at that, how then do we deal with it? And that's the difficulty. Treaties have been conceptualized as contracts, very easy for us to handle, not so easy for us to handle when treaties are devised in forms of legislation. The contractual character then underscores two key principles, principles that you might be familiar with from your studies in contract law if you've already gone through it. The first one, as I said to you many times, and I will reiterate again for as long as I'm lecturing, free consent. A state can consent to anything it likes, even if it happens to derogate from the Vienna Convention, even if it happens to conflict with other treaties. Free consent. There are the exceptions. I mentioned this to you already, customary international law, and I also mentioned to you use cogens very difficult to derogate from those. There are specific ways which we already spoke about in relation to customary international law, but not use cogens since these are peremptory norms. The second principle, and I've mentioned this sort of in passing, but we'll go a little bit further now. I said to you that states will be held to the commitments that they have made. You are bound by what you commit to. Now they go a little bit further here and they treat it as a good faith commitment. So even as you were signing this treaty, if you had your hands behind your back and you were crossing your fingers, you are still bound by it. Even if you start to play games, interpretive games to try to find ways out of it, the court will assume good faith commitment to complying with the obligations. Meaning the presumption is that you understood the treaty and you fully intended to comply with the treaty. So now it will be for the breaching state to explain why they chose not to comply. That is interesting in terms of shifting the burden. Now the Vienna Convention makes clear these two principles, but also makes clear a few more. The Vienna Convention will only apply to treaties that involve states. They must be state parties, meaning treaties between states and international organizations will not be covered by the Vienna Convention. The agreements must be in writing, and here is where it gets interesting again in the way that international law does, the agreement must be governed by international law. But of course it's governed by international law because it's governed by the Vienna Convention. Yes, sort of. What the Vienna Convention declares is that we will only deal with treaties between states that they commit in writing and that they intend to be governed by international law. Now the question is going to turn around what we mean by intent. Now why include this final qualification? 
this final criterion. Well, states engage in many relations between one another. Not all of them are legal. And states will engage in correspondence with one another. And they don't intend for any of that correspondence to carry any type of legal weight or legal obligations. So maybe they make a joint declaration. Maybe they send out a communique. Maybe they put together a proposal as to how a particular area of law should be regulated. Can they be held accountable for this? Well, that is the idea. We are carving space to allow states to engage in non-legal relations. But this is where it starts to get a little complicated. And the complication comes from a case that you will read eventually, not now, but it's known as the Continental Shelf case. Continental Shelf. And in the Continental Shelf case, the court treated, listen to this, a press communique. The court treated a press communique as a treaty. Now, here's the question for you. Does this mean that from this day, henceforth, all press communiques made by states have the status of a treaty? All press communiques create international legal obligations. Precisely. As your classmate has just said, no. Why? There is no precedent when it comes to the rulings of the ICJ. So we have to understand that in the Continental Shelf case, the court reached this conclusion because of the relations pertaining to the parties to the dispute, because of the context in which the dispute arose. And under those circumstances, the press communique amounted to a treaty. But this does not carry the weight of precedent, meaning in another instance, one would have to make the argument. Now another turning point, and something that is, or a turning point, another threshold point when it comes to treaties, right, and it relates even to the seminar problem that I assigned for this week, is who has the authority to bind states? Now that's an interesting question because all of you have studied some form of public law. You understand the branches of government and you understand that it's the legislative that at least on a domestic scale makes laws. And the judiciary is there, in the case of the UK, to interpret laws, but laws that carry the weight of precedent, meaning the judiciary is also engaged in acts of lawmaking. But at the international level, we said that it's based upon negotiations. But the negotiations happen at what level? At what level do they happen? Consider Brexit and uh, what's underway at the moment. Who is negotiating Brexit? The executive, precisely. And it's even a select number of members of the executive. So the executive is the one who engages in the negotiations. And it's the executive that ultimately concludes the treaties. And when we look to the Vienna Convention, what we see is that the head of a state has the power to bind a state, but also the head of the government 
has the power to bind the state. That's an interesting statement. What is the difference between a head of state and a head of government? The difference in the UK between the Queen and the Prime Minister. The Queen is the head of the state. She is the sovereign. But then we have the Prime Minister who is what? The head of the government. They are not the head of the state. Is this the same in Canada? Any Canadians in the room? It is. Constitutional monarchy. Is this the same in Ireland? Of course not. It's a republic. So the head of state must be elected. Is it the same in France? Does anyone know what happened to the former head of state? Right. So, no. <laughs> we have an elected, la république. You have an elected head of state. So in some states, they're one and the same, but in other states, they are separate. And both have, according to the Vienna Convention, both have the authority to bind the state. Does this mean that the queen could tomorrow reach out to Barnier and say, hey, listen, I'm ready to sign an agreement with you? Could she do that? So this is where we actually need to look at the laws. And the laws are pretty explicit that the Queen only has ceremonial power. Now there's an issue around convention and whether or not she could. And this arose as a dispute in Canada some years ago where the minority government tried to form a government and the coalition that made up the majority was trying to form its own government. And the question then was, does the Governor General, the Queen's representative in Canada, have the authority to choose which one she's going to sign? Which party she's going to allow to form the government? And in the end, the decision was made, my role is purely ceremonial, this is a matter for Parliament to decide. I cannot involve myself in it. Legally prohibited from doing so. So it would be interesting if the Queen did make the phone call, but I think it's pretty clear that she does not have the authority to do so. Anyone heard of Jeremy Hunt? Secretary of State. The Secretary of State, who engages in a lot of international diplomacy, do they have the authority to bind the state? Yes, they do. According to the Vienna Convention, once again, in the Eastern Greenland case, Eastern Greenland case, Foreign ministers, secretaries of state, have the authority to bind their government. Now here's where it starts to get interesting. We know then that the executive is signing the treaty. They're negotiating the treaty, they're signing the treaty. Does this mean that the state is now bound by the treaty? And again, the answer is sort of. What would be then the implication, thinking of it from a public law perspective, with your public law hat on, what are the implications if we were to say that all it takes is for the executive to sign for the agreement to now be binding upon the state? What does this mean then from a lawmaking perspective, right? How so? Undermine the legislative supremacy of parliament, right? So if the treaty were to have domestic effects, and they almost always do, then parliament is going to have to adjust its legislation accordingly. So now we know then that what the executive has done has been to use its prerogative powers in relation to treaty making 
to undermine parliamentary supremacy. And this was precisely what the Miller case was about. Did Parliament, does Parliament or the executive have authority to trigger Article 50? Is it a legislative power or is it an executive power? Now this is an ongoing debate and a number of scholars have written different things about it. Because what we have happen is precisely what was declared yesterday by Rab, the Brexit Secretary, and Theresa May. There is a negotiation underway. There is a treaty that is going to come out of these negotiations, potentially. That treaty is not going to be binding unless it is ratified, keyword ratification, unless it is ratified by Parliament. But how then is what type of authority does Parliament have when it comes to this treaty? Can it modify the treaty? Can it revise certain provisions? What is it permitted to do? Well, Dominic Raab and Theresa May have said, we will bring you a treaty and you'll have the choice, take it or leave it. And Parliament has turned around and said, our authority goes beyond that. And they're pointing then to the constitutional role of Parliament. And the constitutional role of Parliament is as then representatives of the public in the first instance. But in the second instance, Parliament is a forum for public deliberation, which is why you can sit in on Parliament at any point. A forum for public deliberation. But the deliberations and the jurisprudence on this is clear. The deliberations must be meaningful. But does meaningful deliberation amount to the authority to amend a provision within a treaty? Now, some would like to say yes, because that then enhances democracy. If we say no, then effectively, the executive can negotiate as many as agreements as they like. And every time you bring it to parliament, it's a take it or leave it and the momentum is always going to be behind the take it. So let me ask you a question then. In the European Parliament, how many times have they rejected a treaty that's been brought forward by the European Commission? Anyone know the answer? You might not. The answer, one. Only one. And it was the anti-trafficking treaty. One. Once. For all the treaties that the European Commission has negotiated only once has Parliament opposed it. There is a momentum behind it. So the concern then, and this is what brings us to the seminar, about the emergence of a type of executive supremacy in lawmaking. Now why I'm presenting this to you in this manner, in that there are different positions, different arguments, is because this is a live debate. It is not settled, not by a long shot. Hence why we had the Miller case back in January. Hence why you had the statement being made by Rab and May, was it just yesterday? So this is a live issue. It has to do then with how the constitutional matrix, that separation of powers, those branches of governments, the authority that each one possesses is in flux. And it's in flux because of changing political economy. Free trade agreements are negotiated at a very technical level. Do we expect 
parliamentarians to be involved at every stage of the negotiation, the comprehensive economic trade agreement that was signed between the EU and Canada is 1,500 pages. Do you expect every parliament of every member state and therefore every parliamentarian to read through this and then say, change Article 1216, paragraph C, from inclusive to exhaustive, or we don't sign. It's impossible. There would be no way of getting any type of assent. And yet, now that, now that international law is regulating everything, what are the implications for democracy? Is the more the executive empowered, the more we then, as a people, weakened? Or is this just the nature then of law in the future? It becomes so technical, so specialized, that in fact, it doesn't make much sense to involve either parliamentarians or the public in the deliberations. And then if that's the case, what does this mean then, on one hand for democracy, and on the other hand for concepts of liberty and such? So again, I'm presenting it to you in this manner because it remains an open debate. Now, a couple of final words. There is much more that I would like to say about what a state could do if it doesn't like a provision in a treaty. This is known as a reservation. There is much more I would like to say, particularly about interpreting treaties. And I love the idea of speaking about interpretation so very much that I'm going to use professor's prerogative to speak to you about it on Tuesday. Haha, <laughs> take that. But there are some topics that I do not have time to cover that I raise in the hopes that you, in your groups or in your independent study, will consider. Topics that are relevant to treaties, the application of treaties, how are treaties applied, how are treaties revised. Changing circumstances mean changing treaties. Do we have to repudiate it or can we merely revise it, amend it? I would speak to you if I could about suspending a treaty, which is done at times, about the repudiation of a treaty and about the termination of a treaty and how each one of these is different. A suspension being for a period in time, a repudiation being by one party and a termination being an agreement by all parties to end the life of that treaty. And I would probably say a few words about validity and invalidity, but I do not have time, so I will not. So I will conclude with this. The Vienna Convention is essential to your understanding of treaties. In the same way that Article 38 of the ICJ is essential for your understanding of sources. Do not merely rely on the textbooks. The textbooks are there for a reason. They are very useful at explaining, at making accessible a mass of information. But you who are interested in going a little bit further, beyond the superficial, beyond the surface level, who want to dig a little bit deeper, who want to dive a little deeper, it is in your interest to look at the treaties themselves. Develop a mastery over your ability to engage with treaties. Treaties is the, are the language of international law. The jurisprudence of the ICJ is the language of international law. 
develop a familiarity with it. So every time I mention these cases to you, yes, jot down the ratio as I said it, but I don't have time to engage in the case with you. So at least go and have a look. Who were the parties? What year did this take place? What were the issues? What was the outcome? This treaty, let me go ahead and read Article 19 in any treaty I come across and see what ended up in 19. Why is the preamble written in this way versus the provisions in the other? Engage with the instruments themselves and I promise you your mastery of international law will surely deepen. See everyone next week then.